0: Hope has become clear over the course of the five previous episodes, during which I interviewed techno pioneer Jeff Mills, drummer Lenny White, trumpeter Randy Brecker, pianist Cameron Graves, and guitarist Brandon Ross, most of whom come from different musical generations and are not peers. When I say the word fusion, I'm talking about a state of mind, not a style or a genre. It's not what you play, It's how you approach music making. I understand that when most people hear the word fusion, they think of the big-name bands from the 1970s, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, Return to Forever, and Weather Report. Those groups, and the Miles Davis bands from 1969 to 1975, and many other less immediately recognizable names, all did a particular thing playing extremely complex music that blurred the lines between progressive rock and jazz. We talked about those acts in the second and third episodes this season with Lenny White and Randy Brecker, both of whom were around then and were actively participating in making that music. If you think of fusion as a mindset, though, rather than a style, the discussion gets a lot more interesting, and that's really how I prefer to think about it because the people who fall into the latter category are the ones who I find to be the most interesting, and the ones who are more likely to have careers where almost every record they play on is at least worth hearing, worth giving a chance. You may not like all of it, but they're creative enough that they've earned the benefit of the doubt. A perfect example of this is Bill Laswell, the bassist and producer. He doesn't use the term fusion, he calls what he does, collision music, bringing together players from wildly disparate areas, stylistic areas and literal geographical regions, putting African players together with guys from Southeast Asia and New York rock artists, and whoever else he thinks has something to say, and seeing what comes out when they all work together toward a common goal. And sometimes you get something glorious that you never could have predicted or imagined beforehand. Like pairing Pharoah Sanders with a troupe of Nawa musicians from North Africa. Or putting improvising guitarist Derek Bailey together with drummer Jack Jeanette, DJ Disc from the Invisible Scratch Pickles, and Laswell on bass. I heard a recording of that group just a few days ago, and you might not expect something like that to work, but it really, really did. Bob Stewart is a fusion artist, in that he takes an instrument that has had a relatively low profile in jazz for decades—the tuba—and found a variety of fascinating contexts for it, not only on his own albums, but particularly in partnership with the late alto saxophonist Arthur Blythe. They began working together in the early 1970s, and Stewart's playing on some of Blythe's albums, most notably Bush Baby, where it's just the two of them and a percussionist, and on Lennox Avenue Breakdown and Illusions, where they had some incredible bands that included at different times James Blood Ulmer on guitar, Cecil McBee on bass, Jack DeJohnette on drums, James Newton on flute, Abdul Wadud on cello. On the album Blythe Spirit, Blythe and Stewart record a version of the spiritual Just a Closer Walk With Thee with Amina Claudine Myers on organ that's absolutely amazing. We talk about that piece a little bit in this interview. He's worked with a lot of other artists over the course of his career too, including Charles Mingus, McCoy Tyner, Carla Blay, Gil Evans, the Jazz Composers Orchestra, Bill Frizzell, the David Murray Big Band, Lester Bowie's Brass Fantasy, and on and on. The reason he's able to do so many different things is that his approach to the tuba is really expansive, conceptually speaking. He treats it as much more than a substitute bass. He understands its full range and the subtleties it's capable of expressing, and he uses it in ways lots of other people would never even think of. On his own albums, First Line, Then and Now, and Connections, Mind the Gap. He puts together really unorthodox collections of personnel. For example, on Then and Now, which was originally released in 1996 but just recently popped up on Bandcamp, some of the tracks feature two trumpets, trombone, French horn, and drums, while another is a duo with pianist Dave Burrell, and others have trumpet, alto-sax, guitar, and drums. And Connections, Mind the Gap, which is from 2014 features tuba, guitar, and drums, with trumpet and trombone added on two tracks, but then on five others it's the core trio plus a string quartet. Now that's very much a kind of fusion. Jazz, which is already in an avant-garde zone combined with chamber music. Bob Stewart is a fascinating guy. He's an endlessly creative spirit who has done a tremendous amount, to change the image of his instrument in order to pave the way for guys like Theon Cross, who plays tuba with Sons of Kemet, or with Jose Davila, who plays with Henry Threadgill's Zuid. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. (laughs) Mr. Stewart? Yeah. Hey, Still? it's Phil Freeman. Philip? Yes.
2: How are you? How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm doing a a podcast where you know I interview various musicians, and this current set I'm doing about ten interviews, all revolving around a broad theme of fusion. But I don't think of fusion. Just in the sense of like the Mahavishnu Orchestra and return to forever and you know Miles Davis in the 70s and that kind of thing to me It's a much more. It's more of a more of a mindset and a strategy than a sound, you know what I mean? And Uh so that's why I feel like you're somebody that I really should talk to so I'd really like to sort of start at the beginning, which is how did you become a tuba player? Was it your first instrument? I mean, it can't have been right (laughs)
2: <laughs> Could have been, but uh, not likely. No, it wasn't. Uh, I started on trumpet, actually. was my first instrument when I was in uh, sixth grade in Newport, Rhode Island.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, continued playing. Uh, left Newport around 1960, moved to Philadelphia and continued playing and went to high school in Philadelphia. And then... Uh, Got a partial scholarship and auditioned for what was called at the time Philadelphia Musical Academy, which is college. Uh, it is now Conservatory of the Arts in Philadelphia. Uh, and my third year, because I was having some ambrosia problems, I had to switch to a larger mouthpiece in order to complete my uh, recital. Uh-huh. And after, uh huh. After my junior year of playing tuba. Uh, by, I'm not sure whether it was January, February, March of the following year, um, I did a recital on tuba, and that's how it all began, and it wasn't until I got my first gig a year later, ap- after I graduated from college and was teaching full-time in Philadelphia, I got this gig at a place called Your Father's Mustache. There was a father's mustache down at 7th Avenue and 10th Street during the uh, late 60s and to the 70s. Okay, uh, yeah. So I played at the club in Philadelphia for a year and then uh, went down to Summers Point and played at the club down there, New Jersey. And then coming back to uh, Philadelphia in September, the uh, owner of uh, your father's mustache, which there was a chain of them, Chicago, New Orleans, uh, Philadelphia, New York. Uh, he asked me to come and play on weekends at the club in New York, which is, like, cool. And uh, so I would finish teaching on uh, Fridays and get in my car with the tuba and drive to New York and play Friday and Saturday nights at the club in New York
1: mm-hmm. from,
2: like, 8.30 until 3 in the morning. So, Wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> So without a microphone, by the way, with the two banjo players playing it and singing into a microphone, trombone player, washboard. So I'm blowing against all that for about six hours.
0: <laughs> now, yeah, that's, that's kind of my next question is, like you said, you had embouchure issues, so you moved to a larger, you know, mouthpiece. And I'm curious why you didn't like land in the middle, like why you didn't become a trombone player or French horn or something. You leapt straight from trumpet to mm-hmm. tuba, you know.
2: Um, it, it's just too close, and and I had to go to something that that really trained new muscles
1: mm-hmm. You
2: know, I had to go to something that so I wouldn't be anywhere close to those muscles that were had muscle memory of doing things wrong. So I just went to uh, a larger mouthpiece and and uh, was able to uh, use the experience of having played already to, to train new muscle and was able to do. Uh, not such a very difficult graduation recital, but it was a recital nevertheless. Yeah, yeah. And what,
0: can you describe that sort of from a player's perspective? Like what you're, what you have to do differently to play the tuba versus, you know, is it, is it capable of the same kind of subtleties that a trumpet or a trombone
2: is capable of? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Once you're able to, you know, educate your your lips to do it, I mean it certainly is capable of all sorts of things. It's a pretty miraculous instrument. You just have to stick around long enough to be able to figure out how to do it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know. mm-hmm. But it uh, it has all the, all the capabilities of any instrument. I mean that's, you know, people call it ball, 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 and that's you know, it's one of the things it does while at the same time it's just so much more to the instrument than that that people have no idea about. And uh, particularly this day and age, there's so many just marvelous, virtuosic uh, tuba players around the world. Every country has any number of them. The United States has a bunch. Of, there's a gentleman in, in Portugal uh, named Sergio Carolino. He's just a, a phenom on the instrument. And mm-hmm. he's, just nice, he's just as nice as he is capable on the Wonderful, wonderful person. Uh, Michelle in Paris, just, just marvelous players all over.
0: I feel like the instrument's profile has been raised just a little bit in the last couple of years because of uh, Theon Cross from London, who's part of this group, Sons of Kemet, and also records stuff under his
2: own name. Are you familiar with his well, work? No, I mean, there? he continues He continues the process of raising, raising the... Uh, 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 the visuality of it and the, how visual the instrument is, uh, but uh, he's but in the long line of super players that have been doing that, starting from Ray Draper and, and Howard Johnson, myself, and then Joe Daly, Dave Bargeron, These are, you know, these, these are all precursors to his great playing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a process, you know, it's a process that that leads us to where we are now, yeah, of which he's. He's certainly one of the most recent uh, um, contributors
0: yeah and I feel like you know it's also helped a little bit that uh, in the last decade or so that uh, might be two decades at this point that uh, Henry Threadgill tends to use tubas in a lot of his ensembles which is yeah there were well, cool. there are a
1: few
2: few bands like that that have that have evolved that way I mean I, I was very fortunate to come through at a time through the um, 70s and 80s and 90s, when there were there were just a whole uh, plethora of bands that decided, and it was, it was the time that the tuba suddenly became hip through the all all two and a half decades of that time period, where um, Carla Blay was using the tuba. Gil Evans uh, had a ten-piece. both of those bands were about nine or eight or ten-piece ensembles. Were you both using the tuba? And then coming into the 80s, uh, Arthur Blythe was using, u- using the tuba. Uh, and then and at that time, when Arthur was using the tuba, Henry Threadgill had, had a trio it was called Air, and it was just uh, drums, uh, drums, bass, and saxophone.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then later on, uh, by the time we got to the 90s, he started to invest in uh, the very very circuits where he used Marcus Rojas and Edwin Rodriguez uh, on tuba, and he's in his and he's in his more recent groups. He used Jose Davila uh, yes. on tuba yes. in a very interesting interesting way. He writes these kind of figured bass lines, but not figured in the sense of Bach or something. There, there. I mean, you can describe them as figured bass, but I went. Matter of fact, I went to his house at one point and asked him to explain what. The numbers that he was writing down underneath the underneath the bass part or above the bass part what exactly they meant he was telling me how it gives the uh tool player options of what notes he can play with us a third fifth root what it, and and i understood at the time but then i walked about a block away from my house and, what did he say <laughs> <laughs> yeah i saw that
0: group play at the jazz gallery with uh right and and it was the the thing that they were performing was effectively like concertos for each you know Mm -hmm. member of the group so there was one that was structured all around jose's contribution he was the central instrument you know and then there was another that was focused on the guitarist you know and stuff like that it was very it was very interesting
2: it's been great for the tuba because there have been a whole series of composers band leaders that have decided to use tuba and they all were they all worked out to be very successful in the groups that they presented so therefore the tuba was able to prosper, and uh, and that's been going on since I came to New York in 1968 with the people that I work with, and and then at the same time that was going, there are other bands. Just in order to for the two players to grow and understand how to be in be in an ensemble, how do you play in a trombone section? How do you play in a big band? The Frank Foster had a big band that was working that was doing it. Uh, Sam Rivers had a big band. Nobody ever heard about these bands and the tuba and those bands because they didn't get that kind of they didn't get that kind of uh, exposure right they were just a collective black artist big band Mm -hmm. all these bands I had a chance to find just figure out how the tuba works in these ensembles and how do you do that how do you how do you play with the trombone what do you have to listen to to play with the trombone section how do you tongue how do you articulate so you're phrasing the same way that's why when you ask the question about can the does the tuba have all those subtleties? yes, it does. But again, it has about it has about training and experience. Once you get a chance to play in a trombone, so you listen to that trombone, lead trombone, do that, do that, da, do that, do doo-da, that. You know, and you learn how to, therefore, how do I do that on tuba? Uh-huh. How do I make those kind of uh, uh, accentuations on those instruments, short and long, and how to play in the section? That's that's really just about experience. I mean, it's hard for somebody to do something that hasn't had the benefit of the opportunity to, to, uh, you know, participate in a situation like that. Right. It's been an ongoing process, right, all the way up to where we are right now. I'm very interested. We left the movie's Brass Fantasy, and Mm -hmm. it just just continues.
0: Yeah i'm very interested in asking about some of these records that you've that you've done and you know one of the ones that i noticed was very early on you were on a couple of albums by taj mahal that was like blues guitar and then a four tuba section so that's a really unusual arrangement so tell me about that
2: well it kind of it starts with um uh during that time when i was coming back and forth from philadelphia Working weekends in New York, I uh, one of the one of the times I was doing that, I met I met Howard Johnson, uh, and he because he was it was one of the only gigs in town. He was working on his father's mustache also, mm-hmm. and one one of the nights I was there during the weekend, uh, he came and introduced himself to me, and the and I discovered there's another black tuba player far out, <laughs> you know. So we would hang out in weekends. That's how we got to be met and got to be close friends. Because every weekend I would come in, I would uh, hang out with him, we'd play our gigs, and then we'd meet around three in the morning and go over on Lower East Side and get grits and eggs in the morning. And then we'd play during the night and then sleep by the time morning with him. So we'd hang out all weekend. That's how I started to understand what exactly was available for the tuba. And, um, And then later on that, that same year when I was coming in and out by 1968, uh, he formed a group called Grav- uh, Substructure,
1: uh-huh.
2: which was six tubas. And we started doing, having rehearsals. So now I'm coming in on Thursday to do Gravity Substructure rehearsals. It'd be, the name eventually became Gravity, that's why I keep saying that, sorry. Uh, but coming to for Substructure rehearsals on Thursday, get back in the car, drive back to Philadelphia, teach on Friday, get back in the car, drive back and then do uh, Friday and Saturday at your father's mustache. So I really wanted to move to New York. You know, I was determined. I was determined matter of fact almost almost the end of me because having white line fever, being tired, driving back and forth on the turnpike, I find myself in the next lane. I was very fortunate to live through that. But uh, I wouldn't wanted to be here. And so that's those were the things I did in order. Because when I first started playing tuba and wanted to come to New York, I mean, I had no idea what, what what the tuba's relationship to jazz was. I had no idea whatsoever. But I was just determined to play and be around. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and in doing so, met all the people and started to work with 50 people like Carla Blair or, or uh, Gil Evans during that time period in the beginning when I first came in the early 70s. Yeah, and so that's how it all. And, it, and it, as as it would happen, uh, my coming into the city at that point, by the by, we got to the middle of the '70s, was the beginning of loft jazz. Mm-hmm. So it really opened up a world of you didn't have to like play bebop or post-bop or any of that. You could come in and still be playing and learning uh, while you were doing the, the loft jazz music at the time. And that's where I met Arthur. Yeah, and that's where. I I met Henry Threadgill and a bunch of other people during that time, David Murray and so on and so on.
0: Did you, I mean, looking back at the Loft era now, do you feel mm-hmm. like it was a fair trade getting that amount of creative freedom, but there was no money? Or, you know, <laughs> like what was, you know? You know
2: was... That wasn't even a, that wasn't even a, necessarily a part of the quotient, the money part, obviously. I was really looking to play and experience how, 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 and, 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 as you look in hindsight, you, you, um, discover what you learned. And while you were learning that I was also going uptown and playing in Frank Foster's big band. So we were playing shiny stockings and, uh, all the Simone and all of his compositions that were all up in the pocket,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
2: in a regular, you know, progression of what the weird jazz was at the time. And and at the same time, I was going uptown and and having rehearsals with Sam Rivers, and he was playing in different ways. He presented the tuba in another kind of way for me. It wasn't just reproducing, as in most of uh, Frank Foster's music, but is playing the same note as the bass player or the baritone saxophone player. So I'm kind of shadowing them. Whereas in Sam Rivers' music, he was writing melody lines for the tuba. Everybody his, his harmony was created through melody and it gave me a whole nother way to look at music and another technique in terms of how I can play on the tube. It wasn't just playing half notes and, 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 and kind of an octave with bass or whoever happened to. Think. So it, it really opened, it was, a, it was a benefit to me. It wasn't so much about money, it was about musical experience that I had. And it gave me, a, at the same time, I was learning how to swing these other bands and with Blythe, I was learning how to swing while at the same time I could come to the music from a different place, while understanding how to swing and how to be part of what was quote unquote jazz at the time, you know? Yeah. yeah. it was a benefit to me having nothing to do with the finance. The finance was to come.
0: creative relationship with Arthur Blythe was really seems like one of the major creative relationships of your musical life so I mean talk to me about that because those you pretty much work together until the end of his life and like the yeah. instrumentation on some of those albums like Illusions and Lennox Avenue Breakdown right was really fascinating to me as you know as a listener because it's like alto and tuba and electric guitar and drums and so i mean talk to me about like how that concept came together and arranging it and stuff like that because there really was nobody else doing anything like that
2: that i know no it, no there was not um it was arthur's it was all arthur's idea i mean he and i worked together before he put that band together we were in Gil Evans' band. That's how we met. Okay. Uh, and we were in Gil Evans' ensemble when, but before it started traveling in the in the late 70s. Um, and by like 76, I went to Europe. I think Arthur may have been in one of those bands. I went to Europe for the very first time with Gil Evans and that ensemble. So mm. Arthur was in and out of that band during that time. And uh, we got a chance to meet playing Gil Evans' music and then we he, decides, he asked me one day. He said, "Bobby, can you play can you play bass lines on the tuba?" And I said, "Yeah, sure."
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> you never say no, right? right. You know, I commenced figuring out how to do it. And so he put and see, but the benefit of it was he wasn't trying to play just kind of regular jazz with the tuba. It wasn't it wasn't about that at all his bass lines were dong ding dang you know oodle ding, ding, ding. so it was very much like for a brass instrument you mm-hmm.
1: Know? Mm-hmm.
2: and so it, was, it blended went very very well with the technique i had together on the tuba
0: and you and, actually uh, got
2: yeah. solo spots you got
0: you know like on the uh, on the lennox avenue breakdown record there's you know there's a tuba right. solo which is you know unprecedented kind of
2: really really absolutely no he's he was very generous Absolutely, very generous, and, the, and and it made us all listen differently to that band. Whether by playing with a cello player, and a guitar player, That's not now, and they took turns. They had to listen differently because they had to figure out well, who's playing the chords, when and where, and uh, what. And now, how do I blend with the two of these people doing that, and how do you know? So we had to figure out all the new relationships. It wasn't just like uh, a trio, regular trio, or regular quintet, or quartet. You had to really understand and and renegotiate the, the lines of, of, of cooperation in those ensembles because that we couldn't look back and listen to somebody else that didn't exist before that.
1: Mm-hmm. So it
2: uh, really made you listen with open and new ears. It was a great it was a great op- it was a great uh, experience and opportunity. I mean, uh, the next next the next, next bands that came together that were doing that that had to listen a different way were a band. When he had two tuba players, and they had to figure out, there was a guitar and in and, and that band, they had to figure out, well, how do we do this together? They had to figure that out. I've never really sat down and talked to them about that, but that's, I'm sure they had to work that out. And with Jose Davila playing with two guitar players, I'm, I think it's two guitars in the group that Jose plays with.
1: Yeah. If I remember
2: correctly, yeah. Because Threadgill likes to
0: pair people off. He likes to have two guitars. Yeah, you know,
2: so it also also makes them have to figure out how to listen differently. They just can't can't approach that like I did yesterday when I played in big band, you know, or like I did in the quintet that I did last week. They have to listen differently. And I would imagine that to be true, because I know we had to figure it out with uh, cello and, and guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we do this together? And uh, so it was—it was a brand new experience and a learning experience because uh, kind of uh, changing the norms of what a uh, jazz ensemble is and how it what it's supposed to do. So it was, uh, it was a great time. Yeah. Great time. Yeah.
0: And uh, and what was the. What was the audience for the Blythe group because you were on you guys were uh, he was signed to columbia so you guys had like major label support for that you know for those records so i mean was the was there an appreciative audience where people come into the shows and stuff like that
2: uh at the time yeah sure because what parallel that was the social movement that was going on uh, during that time uh, um, for people who don't know new york there's an area of there's a street called Houston Street. It's, it's Houston, but they pronounce it like Houston. I guess it's British or something, old British. But uh, the, below Houston Street was an area that where all this music kind of took place, and it took place in an abandoned abandoned uh, loft spaces that you know, whatever they were used for before and. So entrepreneurs, uh, whether it be people that have skills with electricity or plumbing or plastering, would renovate these spaces. And then they would open them up for all kinds of things to have, they'd have art galleries in there during the day. And then in the evening they'd have music, people sitting on pillows and having uh, cookies and, and, and juice. Uh, and that's where Loft Jazz started. So that you've got a combination of this new music and suddenly we've got a space to play in these lofts that have been regenerified down in, down in, uh, and it wasn't called Soho at the time when it got to be Soho, it got to be too expensive to be there. It was just, (laughs) (laughs) it was just South of Houston at the time. Now what happened before it really became Soho, uh, again, another movement happened. Europe discovered that that was going on. So therefore all over Europe, places like South Felden, Villa Sau, um, and, and, um, In Finland, there was the Pori Jazz Festival. There was another jazz festival in Finland I can't think of right now. There were festivals in in Nimes, in France, and and, uh, uh, that started what they call loft jazz festivals all over Europe. And so now they've transferred it from lower, below Houston Street, and it's called loft jazz. And now it's being exported to Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh this is this is happening all through the eighties and like I say the money was to come and and I'm and I say that very specifically because during that time I had stopped teaching and I got a bank loan to uh procure a co op and it was all based on lost debt uh-huh. Now you, you asked me about the money before, this is where the money starts to come and where I was able to pr- produce multiple years of tax forms and said, you know, I'm a working musician and I'm, you know, I'm making money. It was all due to touring and stuff, playing loft in Europe and all the festivals all over Europe during that time period. So this this is a a, a multi-layered momentum of things that are going on, both the social atmosphere in New York, as well as in Europe, as well as what's happening in the music combined with the other two. Yeah. So it's uh, it was a pretty pretty deep in a way you know, <laughs> all those things came together at the time, and it was good for me as a tuba player. I'm saying sure this is great. So. so there's a series of events, social events and, and musical events, all coming together during that time to to increase the momentum of you were asking about the audience. It was a, it was a loft jazz, and then there's a book written by uh, George Lewis came out of Chicago, and he wrote about the A A C M. Um In the last few years and and another combination of that whole thing that was happening, <clears throat> because suddenly that area became inhabitable because it was too expensive, and the public theater invited all the loft bands and all the groups come to come to the public theater here in New York down at Lafayette um down near Eighth Street.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> And so they did a whole concert series of loft jazz. They, I'm not sure what they called it at the time, but they brought all the loft jazz musicians, Sun Ra, and all the bands that were playing here in New York. And then, and, and it continued on, and here's where the money starts to, you know, start where you're at the public theater. So there's a certain uh, value to that financially. Right. And that right. went on. And so, and so, and in combination with that, you talk about audience. The audience is now growing. So you're bringing the audience from, from um, the loft jazz into the public theater. And so each artist is getting a, a, a wider audience listening to them. So now you, you're, you're actually drawing and you can make money. So now the Village Vanguard invites you to come and play.
1: Mm-hmm. You
2: see how this is working now? Yeah. So that's the process that went on. you spoke, asked me about audience. We build our audience, so therefore now the vanguard, see, even though uh, the people of the vanguard uh, weren't particular about having free jazz in there, but they see that they could, they could make some money. And so they invite Arthur, I played with Arthur at the village vanguard, Henry Traggo's trio was at the village vanguard, any number of groups came now to the village vanguard to play one of the bastions of jazz here in New York. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, And it was a benefit to everyone. Vanguard as well as the musicians in the audience they they discovered a whole new audience of people coming in to listen to us and so it was a good thing for them also.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned the AACM, which leads me to asking about your relationship uh, with Lester Bowie because he did uh-huh. uh, you know you you were part of the uh, brass fantasy, but you also worked on some of his albums before that. So. Uh,
2: yeah, he he asked me to play on one of the the um, one of the um, art ensemble albums, but I just overdubbed. He, he, I came in afterwards and overdubbed on one of the albums. I don't remember which album it was actually,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but uh, that's that's the first time he asked me to asked me to play. Okay. And then yeah. later he put Brass Fantasy together. Right. And asked me to come and play tuba bass in Brass Fantasy because he was aware of stuff that I had done with Arthur yeah and, uh, that yeah, music no is as my being able to do it.
0: that music is interesting not only structurally but conceptually as well because it was kind of there were the albums were kind of a mix of original material with versions of some fairly mainstream and cheesy mm-hmm. pop songs kind of so i mean mm-hmm. you know <laughs> mm-hmm. talk to me about not only about the uh you know the compositions but about the arrangements and stuff like that like was that uh you know was that did you have a hand in that stuff
2: well i uh, one of my compositions was performed was recorded on the first album that we did but after that he did tunes like um uh things from, from uh, back in Jimmy Lunsford, three for the festival and he did um he did my way you know and and he did um some billy holiday Billy Holiday uh uh well known songs. The two particular I can't think of them right the second but they were arrangements that were done by Earl McIntyre was a tuba bass trombone player. He works in the um uh he works in um the Mingus Big Band now.
1: Oh okay.
2: Uh, also done by Steve Terray, trombonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a lot of the uh arrangements were done by him. Another one was E. J. Allen who was the trumpet player in the band at the time. So a lot of the people in the band did those arrangements. And he just he took tunes that were, use your word, cheesy, but he transformed them so they were, when you listen to them, they don't feel like that at all. You know, where he just uh, created them like the song My Way. He did it his way, so it became very personal. It became very personal the way he presented those songs. So again, it's a mixture of what, you know, Regular jazz would be along, mixed in with what what Lester Bowie is Bowie is and what he does with Art Ensemble of Chicago,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: he combines those two things so it becomes personal, and is no longer cheesy by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Yeah, I think that's yeah. kind of what's fascinating about mm-hmm. so much of the of the you know that era, is the the implication that you know anything is wide open that any material can be you know elevated or made artful or whatever you know
2: there you go It's what you make of it right
0: yeah yeah exactly it's sort of like you know I had a discussion you know one time with somebody talking about like what is you know what is art you know and the real answer is that anything made with artistic intent is art
2: yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, with all the with all the some of the very abstract things we did with Arthur Blythe, we also recorded Jitterbug Waltz.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, we also recorded uh, with uh, Claudine Amina Myers on organ, just a closer walk with V You know, right. so we did it. You kind of take those songs and you and you put your musical experience and in, 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 in interpretation on them, so they become personal. You know they're just not like some song we choose to do
0: yeah yeah she's uh, she's someone who's kind of fascinating in that way because she mm-hmm. really does approach material you know and very quote unquote traditional material or like old gospel songs or things things that the culture as a whole seems to have moved past you know right. and then and then her thing is kind of saying no don't keep moving no, there's there's something here right, that's worth right. that's worth paying attention to
2: you just you need to just move your position so therefore it suddenly looks differently you know move to the side of it or to the you know that corner of it and it looks totally brand new I mm-hmm. mean she has even a, a, a new way of scatting she has a whole other way of scatting that sounds like uh, coming from Africa more than any, more than it does from Ella Fitzgerald but it's still scatting nevertheless Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: there was a uh, there was also a live record that you did with uh, where brass fantasy and the art ensemble played together as one large group what can you what can you tell me about about that gig
2: i remember that we were we were in japan and watching one of the um what's the fighter's name that bit the other fighters ear oh Tyson. tyson yeah we were watching one of the heavyweight fights with Tyson and, and the British guy that he fought when the British guy knocked him down.
1: <laughs>
2: huh. I, I, I remember we were trans. So that could have been very well, because I'm remembering some of the members of uh, our ensemble were around that table as we were watching that fight in the recording studio. <laughs> so it could very well have been around that time, but yeah. I don't remember I. I yeah, can't make a I just, comment
0: on it right now. And right like a couple of years before that, you made your first album as a leader, the album First That's right. Line. So yep. take me through that record, like your vision for it and, you know, what... Uh...
2: Well, it was a kind of culmination of... of um, what I kind of... Uh, it's not something that I had in my mind like when I came to New York, was no, I, there was nothing in my mind about making recording in my own album at all. I mean, and I didn't even have a concept, like I said, when I came to New York about what the tuba was, or, you know, the tuba as a bass line instrument. I didn't have any of that. It just kind of like fell into this thing where I was doing bass lines with Your Father's Mustache, which was great and I was having a great time. And then, um It wasn't, I wasn't trying to like prove that the tuba could play the tuba bass or uh, nothing. It wasn't in my mind at all. And then, and then people hearing me play, Arthur asked me to play bass line. Then it started to get in my mind that the tuba could do this. And so what I ended up having to do is figure out in order to get the tuba to do that, I had to, because I didn't, I couldn't go listen to other records of, of the tubas doing that. So I had to kind of figure it out on my own, how this was to be done
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, 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 in doing so, one of the things I discovered is I need to figure out how to breathe in order to keep this baseline going like this. I need to figure out another way of breathing because regular way of breathing is dot, dot, dot. Then <sighs> you take it deeper. And while you, while you take that, you know, beat and a half breath, you, you've just blown the time, right? You know, and so I had to figure out how do I breathe in order to keep the time going. So I had to figure out the system of what I call pant breathing. It's like when you see a door and go, <laughs> so I go, do, 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 da da, 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 da. So I'm still playing the notes while at the same time I'm taking these little short breaths in between, da, 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 da. And I just fill up over those five notes. Wow, that
0: that actually sounds exhausting.
2: yeah. It is. At first you get hyperventilated and you're just like, Whoa, where am I? Yeah, it sounds like you know, spin out. It's just like anything else, you have to practice doing it. So I practice going da 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 play scale. da 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 And just have to keep the scale going. And so I have to keep doing this little pant breath three or four at a time, two at a time, whatever it happens to be. And then another way of doing it, I discovered how to, when you're playing a bass line, there are certain spaces in the bass line where you can do that little, you know, you have to find ways of playing your bass line so you create those little areas where you can take those breaths. Mm. And that's, so now I'm really thinking about the tuba as this instrument could be the tuba bass. And so I'm creating a method for doing it by learning how to breathe. And this is all going on all through the 80s. So by the time I get to 1988, I've also started writing compositions because I have to write bass lines that have those little things in them. So it allows me to take a breath.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: those, those bass lines now create compositions. And I've got enough of those together, so I've got a concept for a band, and uh, so I put this band together. And rather than calling a second line, I call it first line.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that I have trumpet, trumpet, and trombone, uh, guitar, and drums. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> and so I then I have to go about playing with these musicians, drummers, find drummers that have some understanding. One of the people that helped me out a lot was Idris Muhammad who's a drummer from New Orleans and uh, he understood about the tuba about having to breathe and therefore he would cover whenever he kind of watched me whatever he saw I had to breathe it would be a cymbal crash crash so it it wouldn't be obvious that I took a breath.
0: Gotcha. You know and I didn't
2: I didn't tell him that he was I mean he informed me of how to play with the tuba. (laughs) I mean I got help from a bunch of different people you know, both people writing compositions and playing with people, finding out how to do this. And even finding out, Arthur helped me find out that I had to get a method for breathing together by asking me to do the gig with him because I had no idea I needed a method for breathing.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So a a lot of people helped me along the way to get to this place where that album is now created. And and so, I mean, at that point, there hadn't been, a tuba player with a quintet you know recording and so i mean i got a lot of a lot of tour time with that and and i created at least two or three albums post that and my most recent in 2014 with um, connections mind the gap right yeah
0: i was wondering about that record with the strings and stuff talk to me mm-hmm. about that
2: uh well my son is a violinist mm-hmm. and uh he has a string quartet called public quartet Matter of fact, he just did a solo performance at the Grammys about a month and a half ago.
0: Oh, nice.
2: Uh, it was uh, He was nominated for uh solo performance in the classical uh, arena. And um, uh, he didn't win it by the same time. They invited him to play at the Grammys in the afternoon. So he did a solo, well, you can check it out. He did a solo performance, Curtis Stewart is his name. Mm-hmm. And he did a solo performance, playing uh, Isn't She Lovely, uh, and they, they had him on stage. It was a fantastic performance, did a great job. So I used his string quartet and, and, um, and commissioned Jesse Montgomery, who's a composer and violinist. She's, I think she's in residency now with the Chicago Symphony. But she wrote this composition in color, in five movements, and so what I did was use some of those, use those movements as interludes. Uh, compositions of their, you know, standalone compositions while at the same time, they, they kind of worked as interludes into some of the other compositions that we're doing, like Bush Baby or, uh, uh, you know, different songs that I was performing, Simone. And so after I put one of these interludes in it as a kind of a color buffet hmm in between the songs so that's that was the kind of idea in me putting that together yeah plus it created a solo piece for the two of kind of a it could be classical it could be jazz because I was improvising on it but the sound of it is more classical than anything else while at the same time it's you know it's it's all intertwined now
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: you know and then so um, that's of yeah you know.
0: in uh in 2020 you did an album with a guy uh kirk knofky who i know uh yeah which was cornet, tuba and drums yeah right so, that was a lot of fun yeah tell me a that little bit a about that fun. record
2: i don't remember uh, who the drummer he, was i think that, he but... was uh i can't call his name right now he's he's, he's a real pocket drummer i mean he's, he's legendary for um, uh being a, a rhythm maker mm-hmm. you know he's a great great drummer
0: Oh, Kenny Wallace. Uh, yeah. yeah,
2: Kenny Wallace Exactly. He's, he's an amazing drummer. I mean, to play with him, and he's he kind of creates a pocket that just like lets you be able to dance. It's really fantastic. Mm-hmm. But that's and he was doing. He was doing. Um, what is it? What is it? Help me out. The, the music of. Um, uh, I'm about to say. Uh, he was remembering, yeah, on his part, he was kind of thinking about the music from a rhythm and blues period
0: oh okay because I'm looking at the tracks on the on the CD and there's like Louis Armstrong there's like right you know there's a piece by Nat Adderley there's you know cannonball Adderley there's a Gene Ammons song there's Gene like Ammons. a Teddy he Wilson was kind of, blues piece he's
2: kind of channeling Gene Ammons in a way okay and so a lot of it had to do with that period of rhythm and blues and and kind of he was doing that but coming from a very contemporary place yeah it's kind of like the combinations we spoke about with Lester Bowie, putting uh Lester boys brass fantasy doing my way and and um uh, uh uh them that's got billy holiday mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. and what's the what's the song about lynching uh
0: oh strange strange
2: fruit, fruit. we did yeah. that's one of the things we did Strange. so doing compositions like that but doing it from a place uh From like where Les is coming and and, Kurt can, and kurt's uh situation doing from where he's coming from in a very kind of uh contemporary way while at the same time looking back and playing some of those songs, but doing them very contemporarily
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: you know so it's so that's i i think i'm i don't want to talk for him but that's that's why I understand he was he was kind of looking back and looking forward at the same time.
0: that uh the the postcards label has uh, reissued yeah, yeah. your album then and now they put it up uh, oh, really yeah they put it up on on Bandcamp for sale digitally uh it, last week june 3rd so like oh, a little oh, over wow. a week ago there's a lot of different ensembles on that record. It's it does you know you did a whole bunch of different things and played with some people that I you know that I know like Graham Haynes you know and Dave Burrell and right. stuff like that. So I mean, tell me right. a little bit about the the concept behind that record.
2: Well, there's <coughs> there's a lot of records I wanted to do, but I you know I wasn't going to do a whole. <coughs> Uh, duo record with Dave Burrell, and I wasn't going to do a whole a whole series of a record with uh, Graham Haynes and and um, uh, what's the alto player's name? Forgive me, please.
0: Uh, Carlos Ward. Uh,
2: Carlos Ward, exactly. I wasn't going, but I wanted to do these two very specific tunes with them, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's what I was trying to do: is put things. Like I did the same thing with uh, with uh, connections. There are there are a few different ensembles on there. There's one that's you know the full first line band with trumpet and trombone, drums and, and guitar, and then there's other ensembles that were just kind of uh, quartets with uh, uh, my son on violin, guitar, myself, and and Matt uh, Matt Wilson on drums.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so it was like <clears throat> trying to put ensembles together that I. That I want to do, but I'm not necessarily looking to do a whole album of them as such. because that's kind of the idea of doing it doing it that way. Because I have a lot of things in my head I want to, I'd like to play and like to do, but I, you know, I want to I want to present a few of them at the same time, rather than all trio album or all this or whatever it happens there.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's because of your instrument I think in a way is it lends itself to experimentation in multiple contexts you know because it's not the kind of thing that you can use for you know it's not like a piano or something where you can play a, a collection of standards and people will just be like yeah okay that's you know that's fine you know I
2: mean I I I, I think it could do that well at the same time uh, I don't want to spend a whole album doing that, particularly. I mean, because there's too many other things. People might, I, I don't know what people will want to do, but I know I, I'd want to move it around a little bit if I were going to do a, a CD. So I will do a trio thing on it. I did, in fact, there's a trio thing on the the Connections thing where we did um, uh, Taj Mahal, uh, Fish and Blues. It's not a Taj Mahal tune, but he, he did it. He recorded it. Fish and Blues and, and Jerome... and and violin and and, uh, Jerome and myself and drums. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did a Fish and Blues, which is a trio. I mean, I could do any number of series of trios. If I did a trio album, it would be trio album like that, where it might be piano, bass and drums on a couple of tunes, and it might be guitar, tuba and drums, or it might be guitar, tuba and violin. I don't know. I mean, call it a trio album. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i mean if i were going to do that that's that's probably what i would do more than do a whole album like um uh, oscar peterson or something
1: right right, right
2: oscar on. peterson trio or you know i wouldn't necessarily do that not necessarily but maybe in a while maybe okay
0: <laughs> yeah you're a teacher as well right what uh what do you what do you teach are you like an arranger or, well you know
2: i'm um Uh, I've been teaching for the last 50 plus years, you know, since I came out of college in 66, I've been teaching all of that time except for maybe about 10 years where I took a leave of absence from the board of education from like 83 to 93, where I was playing full time, where again, like I said, the the lost jazz finally paid off and I got a loan Mm -hmm. based on, but, um, I taught, um, Elementary school in Philadelphia, junior high school. I taught uh, junior high school here in New York when I first came in 72 to 83. And then 83, I took a leave of absence when I came back. I started at LaGuardia High School of Performing Arts, the former music and art, the former uh, uh, high school that fame, the movie fame, the TV program fame was based off of. Mm-hmm. I ran the jazz department in, at uh, LaGuardia from, what is it, um, 93 until '02. And in, in 2000, I was asked to teach at Juilliard. They opened up the jazz line at Juilliard. So Victor Goins asked me to be uh, co-director of the big band. And I was also teaching jazz history at Juilliard, masters level jazz history. And I did that right up until the beginning of the pandemic in 2000. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've kind of, kind of let Juilliard go and all the teaching things, it's enough already. <laughs> <laughs> so I teach in informal and different ways, not necessarily through a, through a conservatory or a school. Yeah. But I did that for a good 50 plus years, Mhm. Mm-hmm. you know
0: thank you so much for talking to me sir this has really been fascinating because I find you know I like I say I love those records with Arthur White so much Mm -hmm. you know and and just the you know the the work that you've done in in a bunch of different contexts is is just you know like expanding the horizons for the tuba you know and so You know and and combining things in so many different ways you know which leads to the Mm -hmm. discussion of you know fusion that i was talking about so
2: right exactly yeah i mean so another kind of fusion you're right that's where you started conversation absolutely a different kind of fusion yeah but in the fusion nevertheless
0: exactly yeah it's fusion as as a mindset you know Mm -hmm. that's right (laughs) so that's right